Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 13 for the first quarter of December 2011. The topic I'm going to talk about today is the true story of Planet X. This is the first in a series of four episodes that will serve as my intro to 2012. Today, the term Planet X is often used to represent something dark or mysterious and potentially capable of jumping out at us in the middle of the night and raining destruction down upon our pale blue dot. Many familiar with the skeptical community will often dismiss such ideas as rubbish, and with it, the notion of a Planet X. In the astronomical community, the term Planet X has had a sordid past, and most today don't use it at all. But others will still use the term in order to describe any as-yet-undiscovered planet-sized object that is somewhere out there in the solar system, waiting to be discovered. Is there an actual Planet X still out there waiting discovery? It's possible. Some may even say probable, and others are using it as a method to explain some of the faraway solar system structure that I may talk about in a future episode. Is there a Planet X that's going to suddenly show up at Earth's doorstep and do bad things to our planet in 2012? No. But before we get into that, in future episodes... I'm going to take a short stroll through history. Until 1781, the solar system was known to consist of Earth, Venus, Mercury, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, along with the Moon, some other moons, and some unexplicable and unpredictable comets. That was it, and it wasn't until William Herschel observed a ball-like object that he described as a non-star-like feature and moving along the fixed background stars. Quote, I know that the diameters of the fixed stars are not magnified with higher powers, as planets are. Therefore, I now put higher powers on my telescope and found the diameter of the comet increased in proportion to the power, as it ought to. Unquote. In writing to the British royal astronomer at the time, Neville Maskelin, he received a response. Quote, I don't know what to call it. It is as likely to be a regular planet moving in an orbit nearly circular to the sun as a comet moving in a very eccentric ellipsis. End quote. Discovering a planet at the time was unheard of. The last planet that had been discovered was known as long as there had been written history, and William Herschel would have become the first person to discover one in modernity. It really took two years for Herschel to actually admit that he had discovered the first planet in recorded history. English scientist Isaac Newton had codified calculus over a century earlier, and the Dutch astronomer and mathematician Kepler, we've talked about him before on this podcast, had developed his three laws of planetary motion in the last century too. By using these... Astronomers and mathematicians were able to use observations of the location of Herschel's new planet, naming it Uranus, and predict its orbit based upon its distance from the Sun and the gravitational interaction with other planets. One of these people was named Alexis Bovard, who published tables of dates and coordinates that predicted where Uranus should be at a given time. These were based on the known laws of physics. 
but Uranus refused to follow Bovard's tables and behave itself. In 1843, Englishman John Couch Adams calculated the orbit of a hypothesized eighth planet that could account for Uranus' odd orbit. But, unfortunately for Adams, no one really seemed to care about this possibly undiscovered planet X. Two years later, a Frenchman by the name of Urbain Le Verrier, and apologize to anyone who speaks French, he did the same thing. But he did a more precise calculation than Adams did. Again, no one really seemed to care. That was until Le Verrier sent his calculations to the Berlin Observatory's astronomer, Johann Gottfried Gall. And again, I apologize now to anyone who speaks German. A then-student at the observatory, Heinrich de Arrest, again, apologies for pronunciation, convinced Gall to look for it. That evening, September 23rd, 1846. Gall looked for this mysterious planet, potentially responsible for Uranus' weird orbit, and he found the planet to within one degree on the sky of where Le Verrier had calculated that it should be. For reference, the moon is about half a degree, so within the width of two full moons, he found this planet. This was within 12 degrees of where Adams thought it should be. At the time, there was no real debate that this object was a planet, as they had been looking for it, and they thought that it was massive enough to account for Uranus' orbit. This also remains one of the best predictor stories in pretty much all of science. But there were still some unexplained perturbations of Uranus' orbit. These persisted for 70 years, to the time when the wealthy Bostonian, Percival Lowell, I can pronounce that name, became interested in the problem and wanted to search for a now-possible ninth planet at the observatory that he had built in Flagstaff, Arizona. I think that he was really the first one who coined the term Planet X in describing this mysterious and unseen object that, nonetheless, was thought to account for the perturbations on Uranus. Lowell searched for 12 years, 1905 to 1916, until he died without finding it. The search resumed in 1929, when the then-director of the observatory assigned the task to a young 23-year-old Clyde Tombaugh. After a year of fruitless searching, Tombaugh found an object moving against the background of stars from two photographs that he had taken in January of 1930. Pluto was discovered, Planet X, and this was supposed to solve all of the orbital problems. When Pluto was initially discovered, it was assumed to weigh in at several times Earth's mass. However, estimates over subsequent decades were refined down, not up, and it was realized that Pluto could not account for Uranus' orbit. The present-day mass estimate is about 20% of Earth's, and this will no doubt be revised again when the New Horizons spacecraft passes by Pluto in 2015. The search for a planet X to explain Uranus half-heartedly was put to rest at the time. In 1989, the space probe Voyager 2 flew by Neptune. Calculations based on the orbital changes from that gravitational interaction between Voyager 2 and Neptune were published in 1993 by Miles Standish, and they revised Neptune's mass down by 0.5%. 
This revised mass, when put into the calculations for the orbits of the outer planets, was then able to precisely account for Uranus's orbit. No mystery object was needed, nor found, and as a result, nearly all astronomers today discount its existence. To be sure, I don't mean to imply that there are no more large objects out there in the solar system waiting to be discovered. But large is always a relative term that needs to be quantified. The proton is gigantic relative to the electron. A sequoia tree is large relative to an oak. And Neptune is large relative to Pluto. But what I mean by large in this context is hundreds to possibly thousands of kilometers in diameter. Icy bodies kind of like Pluto. These are the Kuiper Belt objects, or at least the large members of the Kuiper Belt objects. To date, as of November 2011, only four are large enough such that the International Astronomical Union has termed them dwarf planets. These are Pluto, Eris, Makemake, and Haumeamea. These objects are quote-unquote large, but they're smaller than our moon. And since density is related to volume, which is the cube of a linear measurement, the actual mass of these objects is much smaller than that of a planet. For there to still be these quote-unquote large objects out there to be discovered, they would have to be very far away from the eight planets and the inner Kuiper Belt objects. Remember, even with the technology from over 160 years ago, astronomers were able to calculate that Uranus, an object 19 times farther from the sun than Earth, was being slightly perturbed by an object 30 times farther away from the sun than Earth is. And these are both objects that weigh in about a dozen times as massive as Earth, fairly small compared with what modern planet Xers are claiming. Nothing in science is really locked in stone, so to speak, and it's fairly impossible to prove a negative. However, keep in mind that now that we can explain the orbits of all the planets with known, observed solar system objects, the likelihood of a large object waiting to be discovered is fairly small, unless it's really, really far away. Even a comet that's out by Jupiter that's heading towards us would take at least a year to get to Earth. And we could see it. The idea that there's a massive, planet-sized object that will hit or pass by Earth in just a year is ridiculous. Unless you invoke the supernatural, or physics that we don't know, or that these planet X's can somehow have a cloaking device that shields it from everything including gravity. This isn't the final word on this podcast about Planet X. I'll also talk about the supposed 3,600-year orbit and other things, like the dynamical stability of the asteroid belt. But those are topics for future episodes over the next year. There is no question for Q&A this week. If you'd like to submit one, please use any of the feedback forms available, such as email, the website, or the blog. In terms of feedback, there's a fair amount, including corrections. The first is a correction with the Nazis at the South Pole episode from last week. I stated that I thought Holocaust denial was against Germany's constitution. 
that's not correct. What I was remembering was that at the end of the war, Germans had to take the blame for World War II. Holocaust denial today is against the law in Germany, just not against the Constitution. In terms of feedback about that episode from my blog, I have a comment in the queue from Bruce. Bruce is an ardent supporter of the fringe UFO cult of Billy Meyer, as propagated by Michael Horn in North America. He submitted a comment on my episode about Nazis at the South Pole. Quote, Why are you wasting your time on, expletive, like Nazis living in a hollow South Pole? I mean, please, what a waste of time. But then again, that would be far easier than the fact that pigs given spinach genes was predicted with heavenly accuracy back in 1987 by Billy Meyer, as compiled by your internet buddy, Michael Horn. Unquote. I didn't let Bruce's comments go through, as I've warned both him and Michael Horn many times that they needed to be on topic in order for the comments to be approved. But I thought that this would be a good opportunity to mention that at least one future show will deal with some of the claims by Michael Horn and Billy Meyer. Related to the last regular episode on dust and rock claims of the Apollo moon hoax, I actually have two corrections to make. The first is that I stated the moon was dry. I knew as soon as I said it that someone was going to correct me. And it actually came from my first interviewee, expat. The moon is dry in terms of there not being any standing bodies of water, no interior seas of water, nor anything like that. But water may exist in two places. One is as ice deposited by comets in permanently shadowed craters at the South Pole. In fact, two missions have crashed into the South Pole to try to throw out plumes of ice to be detected by other craft or by Earth. But so far, nothing has been seen. The second is that there's recent evidence that some rocks from the moon contain water molecules bound within them. So in the sense that there's air in rust on Earth and Mars there's water in lunar rocks. The other correction is that I talked about the gish gallops and moving the goalposts as being equivalent in this episode. Bart Seibrell was definitely going with a gish gallop in his claims, moving from one to the other to the other to the other to the other. Moving the goalpost would be if he had actually acknowledged the response, but made the caller give a more detailed one or go deeper than Cybrell had originally asked. So, moving that goalpost to accept the response farther down the road, as opposed to moving from topic to topic. They're sort of kind of related, so in my head I merge them into the same thing when I record the episode. My bad. That brings us to The Puzzler, where each episode I ask a critical thinking-based question, based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. One Apollo moon hoax claim said that there shouldn't be any dust on the moon at all. But there's another that states that dust is so deep that the astronauts should have sunk down to cover their heads. In reality, we know that the depth of the lunar regolith does vary across the surface. Why isn't it uniform? After all, it's not like there's seasonal rain in some parts to wash it away. On this puzzler, I got a lot of different responses. One of my favorite was a Jeopardy-style answer from Peter L. of New Zealand, who responded with, 
What conceivable process could have produced a uniform lunar regolith, considering all the craters and seas and stuff that would have mucked it up? I told Peter that he couldn't answer the question with another question. So congratulations goes to Ravenhull of the SGU message boards for being the first, and I think the only person to actually address this fully. As Ravenhall stated, quote, Events creating the moon dust differ across the moon. Different areas are affected by different events, which create, move, or destroy the regolith. For example, the various moon seas were created by molten rock that flowed into low-lying areas, and any dust there would have had to settle after the event. On the other hand, another adjacent area which did not have this happen to it would have older deposits, and so deeper deposits. Also, there would be deeper areas of dust surrounding an impact crater than areas further away. Finally, since there is effectively no weather on the moon, then there is very little action to distribute the dust once it's settled. Unquote. And that's really about it. Solar wind blowing it around, or the anisotropy of impact flux due to lunar orbital mechanics, are very, very, very minor components compared with the effects that Ravenhall talked about. This week, with the main segment on the history of Planet X and its detection, rather than a normal puzzler, I want to ask a broad question, and then I'll read some of your responses on December 16th's episode. The question is, what do you think a planet is, and why? Yes, I do realize that the International Astronomical Union has a definition of a planet that's out there, but no one actually really likes it. So, to you, what do you think a planet is, or should be? Think about it, and send your ideas to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. That wraps up this topic on the 13th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use the feedback form on the website, send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, or leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website. I read every email, and I appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. If you like this podcast, please write a review and rate it on iTunes. Also, tell your friends, family, and frenemies. Thank you.